we were pretty young back then. That was a lot of money back in those days and something that was a startup. And he was a smart guy. I said, Gary, really, what, what do they do? And he told me what they did. And I said, I just don't get the competitive mode. I mean, here's the kicker, giving it away. Can't anybody sell books on the internet? Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, David Hay. David, are you ready to join the mission? You bet. I've got some serious stories for you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Let me introduce you to the audience. So David has been employed in the securities industry since 1979, when he joined Dean Witter Reynolds, which is now Morgan Stanley. And since 2022, David has been chief or co-chief investment officer of Evergreen GavCal, which with a special emphasis in macroeconomic research. In 2022, David released his highly anticipated book, Bubble 3.0, Who Blew It and How to Protect Yourself When It Blows Apart. The book explores why he believes the financial markets are headed towards a third iteration of past market rotations. Accordingly, he believes there are a number of investment areas, asset classes poised to benefit from what he has begun referring to as the new world disorder. <laughs> David, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Well, you kind of touched on it when you said 1979. There aren't too many people still active in our business that started that many presidents ago. That's when Jimmy Carter was putting solar panels on the White House. I don't think they worked, but he put them on there anyway. So I've been through a lot of market cycles. And one of my, I think, key value adds is being able to recognize and call out and take protective action against bubbles. And really, the first one that I got worked up about was the Japanese stock market real estate bubble of the late 1980s, which frankly probably puts any other bubble to shame. Well, I wouldn't say that after what we went through in 2021, but you know, certainly in terms of the repercussions of a complete blowout in the real estate market and their stock market went down and stayed down for decades. And it really, you know, it was hard to believe that back in 1989, 1990, how Japan was looked at as this tremendous economic powerhouse. But after that bubble burst, 20 years later, they were a joke. Now, mm. they're still a country, but they're also an extremely indebted country, but just to themselves. My point is that when bubbles burst, they have a lot of negative impacts. So my real first, that was you know kind of peripheral, but the real primary bubble call-out was the tech bubble of the late 90s. I've been in the business about 20 years. I had a lot of clients, a lot of assets, and I was, you know, at the time, well, we still are based in Bellevue, Washington, right between Seattle and Microsoft, part of Techland. Amazon had just gone public. It was tech mania. And I was telling people, this is going to end very, very badly. And I was early, as I almost always am. I remember saying it was crazy when the NASDAQ hit 2,500, then it went to 5,000, but then it went down to, you know, basically 800 and something. It went down 80%, roughly, or very close to it. What was the, the peak of the Nikkei back at that time? I 
the Nikkei peaked at 40,000, and I said it was crazy at 20,000. NASDAQ peaked at roughly five. I said it was crazy at 2,500 in, you know, like 1998, 1999, something like that. And and that's the thing with bubbles. They're, they can be fantastic money makers in that last vertical hockey stick. And people say, well, what's a bubble? And I always tell them, it's really quite easy. Just look. You know, it's like the Supreme Court justice who once said, I can't define pornography, but I can recognize when I see it. And I can recognize the bubble. It's because prices go vertical. Now, what you don't know is how far that vertical line goes. And unfortunately, this is one of my main missions in life is to warn people that when those things happen, you've got to sell systematically into them. Not that you get out 100% just because something looks to be in, in a bubble phase, you know, in that hockey stick kind of move. But you start to have a systematic disposition strategy. Imagine how much more money would have been made or at least saved by crypto people who'd done that back in 2021. Even in the last year, but they don't do that. I mean, the average person, you know, they put some money in, it goes up a lot, and they go, "Wow, this is great!" And they put more in, and it goes up more, and they put more in, and then all of a sudden, when that bubble pops, instead of just losing profits, they've had their head handed to them, and it just happens time to time. And I do everything I can to warn people. So let's go to bubble 3.0, which so housing was bubble 2.0. I shouldn't skip over that one, and that's when mm -hmm. I started writing my newsletter the original newsletter, which was the Evergreen Virtual Advisor. And in 05, that's when it started. And it was my mission to warn people that I felt housing was being caught up in a bubble that people like Paul Krugman had exhorted the Fed to do. And Paul McCulley, they were especially Krugman, though, really you know, on the case of the Fed was Greenspan at the time of you need to create a new bubble to offset the bursting of the tech bubble, which mm -hmm. was stupid. Yeah. It, was a, it was a mild recession, even with 9-11, but they did it. You know, they pushed interest rates down to Great Depression levels. Well, forget that. The economy was starting to really go strong in 0304. The Fed belatedly raises rates. They raise them a little bit at a time. In the meantime, the housing bubble just inflates and inflates and inflates. And a lot of junk mortgages. So that was really the genesis of my newsletter. So that's been, you know, 18 years ago I started that in reaction to bubble 2.0. Then bubble 3.0 comes along and, you know, kind of the basically it. It was already inflating. And then, ironically, COVID pumped a tremendous amount of helium into that blimp. And we got what I think was, we'll go down to history, and I've got a lot of data to back this up, the biggest bubble in recorded human history. And that's when I started writing my book to get it out there, which we barely did. We got it out digitally through Substack in early 2022 to warn people this is going to be a bad outcome including for what you think is a conservative portfolio. So one of the biggest and best warnings in my book was to say, if you're a balanced investor, you're probably going to lose money soon on both your stock and bond side your portfolio, which is exactly what happened last year. That was the worst year for balanced portfolios since 1871, 150 years. So that's been my mission to try to warn people when these things get so out of whack and you know, we're, try to protect yourself from the you know, the consequences, the aftermath, but there's always opportunities. And, and that's a big part of the book is how do you invest now? And, you know, it started a little over a year ago, but it's still true. I think we're still in a new paradigm. And yet so many investors are still using the playbook that worked for the last 40 years. Mm. I was just looking at this uh, great book called Hidden in Plain Sight, what really caused the world's worst financial crisis and why it could happen again, which was Peter uh, Wallison, where he went through the incentive structures set up by the government many years before the 2008 crash 
to try to force Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to own lower and lower quality mortgages, which, you know, from a political perspective made sense. But what was happening behind it, this was all happening, of course, behind the scenes. When you have quasi government institutions, you can influence their, their behavior without really getting seen as opposed to saying, okay, we need $5 billion to cover the losses for higher risk portfolios that we want to see at these, you know, companies. And so it's just fascinating watching bubbles. The second thing I would mention is that in 1992, I moved to Thailand. It was one of the fastest growing emerging markets in the world. And I came here to teach finance. So I taught finance for my first year. And then I realized it took me a year, David, I was, I'm a little bit slow, but I realized that I'm not going to make any money as a teacher here. So I looked around for a job and I found a job I applied for at a broker and they hired me right away. And I became an analyst in 1993. That was September of 1993. The Thai stock market doubled. And in January of 1993, it was at 1789 and it proceeded to fall by basically 90% and 95% if you, yeah, 95% if you include, if you were looking at it in US dollar terms, and that bottomed out in about 2001 from 1994 down to 2001, which was the, the bottom. And uh, I rode that all the way down. I mean, I, I ended up, you know, doing pretty well throughout it because luckily I just didn't have that much money. And most of the money I had, I put it into a private company that I was starting with a friend of mine. But I lived through that. And when you look at the reason why I was talking about the Nikkei is if we look at the Nikkei average, you know, it's at it's approaching 30,000, but still not back. We're talking about, you know, in the case of Thailand, the Thai market's still not back to the prior peak, and that's 30 years. So with Japan, we're talking 35, 40 years. So I think people underestimate how devastating and how long of a down cycle it can be. Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, you were there, you had a front row seat for the Asian crisis, and I think it actually started in Thailand, wasn't it? Correct. The Thai Correct. Free the, I came into work on a July third and the Thai bot collapsed. And basically I was a bank analyst at the time. So I had been working on the Thai banks for many years and then was a Thai bank analyst throughout the recovery and understanding how to recapitalize. But at the peak of the problem in Thailand, we had 55% non-performing loans in the banking system. Just unbelievable. We didn't have a great structure for the legal framework for that to be worked out. So that that was created and a huge volume of, of loans went through that process. But yes, it can be brutal. And I think let's just talk for, for a second about a bubble 3.0. If you think about, you know, what how can somebody I mean, obviously get the book. We're gonna have links to the to the book in the show notes and get on your subscription, you know, for your email. And we're going to have a link to that also in the show notes. But maybe just give us a little tidbit of one thing that the listeners could do to protect themselves in this type of environment. Yeah, great lead in. And I think the, the summary answer to that is invest in scarcity. And I will admit I stole this from uh, my great friend, Grant Williams, great friend, another great friend, Tony Deenan. And that he said that a few years ago, and that's when the stock market was roaring. Is I don't even pay attention to the S and P. What I want to invest in things that have true underlying scarcity to them, and I think never is that more has that been more important than today, where you have a lot of valuable commodities, literally, that are trading at very cheap valuations at the same time 
that treasury bonds, which are just another way of printing dollars, have been created by the trillions in recent years in reaction to COVID. I mean, the U.S. went full on MMT, modern monetary theory, in reaction to COVID, even though Jay Powell had derided it you know, a year earlier, said it's a stupid theory, but he ended up enabling it. And you know, really, it couldn't have happened without the Fed's complicity. So, as a, and, and those hard assets actually performed quite well yet uh, last year, but this year we've had a real reversal of fortune. So a lot of the things that got crushed last year, look at profitless technology companies. They've been the leaders this year. Mm. And yet you've got in with the U.S. stock market to segue a little bit, a very narrow participation. It's it got fairly broad that it's thinned out. I mean, it set, the SV was up 7% in the first quarter. 95% of that came from 10 stocks and 90% came from five stocks. I mean, that is really serious market halitosis, bad breath. Yes. Not what you think. But conversely, a lot of these high quality hard asset plays have come down hard. I think one of the greatest ways an investor can have protection against the payback from bubble 3.0 is with the uranium. And it's a very easy way to play. There is a very easy way to play that with the Sprott physical ETF, SRUUF is the U.S. ticker symbol. But, I mean, oil, the fact that oil is at $80 a barrel when it was $140 a barrel back in 2008, you know, adjusted for inflation, and then you've got the, you know, probably one of the most important energy producers that's going to be, you know, losing some share of its market. I know the Russians are getting around it pretty cleverly, but $80 for oil, and you look at the inventories, and I've tracked the oil market for decades. I've never seen inventories this tight. This is an unbelievably tight oil market. Mm. And now final reopening, natural gas has been crushed, natural gas at $2 per million British thermal units. When you've got, you know, Europe's lost 40% of its gas imports from Russia, and that's not going to change overnight. Gold is looking very interesting, even though it may be a little bit extended near term. Silver as well. Copper. In the, the, this, we clearly are going through this great green energy transition, and it just seems like the policymakers are doubling up despite all the evidence that it's going to be a very costly and much more drawn out process than they would like. But there's going to be so much more copper consumed as a result of the great green energy transition. And yet Freeport FCX is trading at an extremely reasonable valuation. The fertilizer companies have been hammered recently. Yeah. So there's a lot, I think, emerging market debt where you know, mm. people are saying, yeah, we're, we're going to go into an easing cycle. And Andrew, this is something that is different than any time in my career. Again, I've been doing this for 44 years. I became a bond market bull in, bull in 1981. And I was a bond market bull from 1981 to 2020 for the most part. There were a few times where late in an economic cycle, we'd shorten duration and you know get prepared for the, the next you know in, inflation surge. And then you know, but for, for decades, inflation would flare up a little bit, but never really get out of control. And the yield curve would invert. It would be a great time to extend duration. This is the only time in my career that I haven't done that. Mm. And the reason is that I, I just don't believe a 10-year treasury at 3.5%, given the secular inflationary trends that are now in place. And I lived through 40 years of disinflation. I know what that's like. It was great for my career. And I'm not a gold bug by any means, but this time is truly different. So if you want to play what is likely going to be a peaking of the global interest rate cycle, things like emerging market debt, which most U.S. investors don't want to touch because that's done well. I mean, it's actually done well for the last year or so, believe it or not, better than treasuries. But still, I mean, it's down because rates are up. 
But right. if you, I think that's a way, you know, because I'm trying to, you know, walk my talk here and not just do what has worked in the past, because I think so many things that have worked in the past won't work in the future. And that's one of them. I also think that the mortgage rates are an interesting way to play if you believe the yield curve is going to steepen. And I think at some point the Fed's going to be forced to cut short-term interest rates drastically. But I think long-term rates, so a couple of off-the-wall predictions, I think long-term rates are going to rise in a recession, which would be very unusual. Mm. And I think oil prices are going to rise in a recession, which is also extremely unusual. So let's uh, let's take some of that apart for a second. The first one is the uranium. So I'm looking at the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which I think is what you're talking about. Yeah. And that I'll have a link in the show notes for people that are interested in that. But basically, it says it holds substantially all of its assets in uranium in the form of U308. And the goal is to provide a secure, convenient, and exchange-traded investment alternative for investors interested in holding uranium. And the total asset value right now is about $3 billion that are in it. And they've got 61,000 pounds of U308. And the NAV right now is 12.76. This is according to the website, I think, of the originator of the ETF. So one of my questions related to these kind of hard assets is that, and certainly gold has helped in my portfolios over the last couple of years, but there's a lot of people that feel like, oh, I can't go into these things. They're not yielding and I'm not getting the return of a stock market, which we know over a long period of time, equity provides the best return. When you think about a beginner, you know, a high net worth person, but they're, they've really been pretty traditional 60, 40 type of investor. And then you talk to them about these types of asset classes. Obviously, if they subscribe to your newsletter and learn more about what you're saying, they'll get the full picture on it. But are you saying that they should be moving a huge amount of their money or that they should blend in some of this? Or how do you think about it for kind of a beginner in the space? Well, I'm a big believer. Our firm is a big believer in diversification. So I would certainly not say put everything into hard assets. There's other areas of the equity market we think are attractive. Hmm. But I think if I had to rank it as number one, and this has been true for me for the last couple of years, I wrote a, a newsletter called Totally Toxic on energy in December 2020, comparing it to the tobacco stocks of 20 years prior. And as you probably remember, Philip Morris from 2000, 2020, absolutely crushed the stock market, even though at that time, nobody wanted to go near the tobacco stocks with a barge pole. So, you know, energy was in that same kind of a situation at that point. And since then, it's up like 150%. It's had just, it's enormously outperformed. So it was up, the XLE was up like 56% last year, hmm. you know, when the S&P was down 18%, I mean, just enormous delta. But so that's a way that you can, to your point of not getting yield with these hard assets, these energy companies in many cases have terrific yields. And if you want to play it in quite a conservative way, which has fallen way out of favor, even though it's been rallying, is the, the midstream, the pipelines, you know, where you can get seven, eight, nine percent cash flow yields on real assets. Their revenues are indexed to inflation. And it, all it ever does is raise its distribution on average three times a year since it's been public. And, you know, would you rather have a treasury that is due in 10 years at three and a half percent that will never raise its, its yield, can't raise its yield or something like that? And they're heavily involved with the, the whole energy ecosystem, you know, particularly natural gas. And as you know, the U.S. has 
the major natural gas exporter, and that's going to accelerate. Mm. I mean, there's these new LNG facilities that are under construction or will be under construction. The U.S. has become a powerhouse in natural gas, which, you know, that's saved Europe here recently. So it, there are lots of opportunities out there, but they tend to be in areas that people aren't exposed to. You know, there's just, again, this kind of, you know, what's happened, what's worked in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Well, it's mostly been large cap blue chip combined with bonds and bonds have provided a very nice counterbalance, right? So when we've had these periodic downdrafts in the stock market, the bonds have done great. That's what happened in the crash of 87, which I'm old enough to remember. Mm. Bonds had been crushed before that. Then they had a monster rally as stocks went into the, you know, the plunge mode. And But it's a very different set of circumstances today. I think people, again, I started in 79, so I missed most of the 70s, but I was an investor in the early 70s. But not many people remember what that was like. Yeah, I mean, I was a kid, let's say in 75, I was 10 years old. We were living in Delaware in 77. We moved to Ohio. And I remember the, you know, the lines at the pump and, you know, all the focus on gas and petrol, as we say here. And one of the things about the energy companies, you mentioned about investing in energy companies as one of the ways to kind of play the energy theme or maybe the oil price. And then you talked about pipelines being midstream and having a good yield. There's some people, I mean, I follow some people on LinkedIn that I know who are just like, it's the end of energy, you know, it is not, you know, this has got to stop. And how do you quell the fears that someone may have about buying energy now when they see this march of an army, you know, attacking the energy industry? And I mean, they've attacked it very well in Germany. I mean, I think they've almost beaten it to the ground, you know, and so I'm just curious, how do you frame that for someone? Well, first of all, if you look at the developing world, there's no question that fossil fuels have been in a gradual decline, the usage of fossil fuels. Now, that's just painting with a broad brush because natural gas has gone up. Oil has been somewhat flattish to slightly down, coal down quite a bit, though coal had a major resurgence. Ironically, you mentioned Europe. So what does Europe return to? to make up for the fact that it's closed down so many of its nuclear facilities and it's lost access to Russian energy, if they're back to burning coal. And they're burning burns. rocks and trees. And trees. They, they, they import, a lot of Americans don't realize how many wood, I mean, massive amounts of wood pellets they bring up from the, the American Southeast mm-hmm. and burn them. And they consider that to be renewable. It is renewable, but it, it's dirty. It's dirtier than burning coal. Mm-hmm. And Germany also has is, is uh, endowed with lignite, which is the dirtiest form of coal to burn. So ironically, despite all these trillions of dollars they've spent on renewables and over the last 10 years in particular, the usage of coal globally is at an all-time high. Now, when you burn gas, that yeah, there's methane issues. And the nice thing about methane is it's usually from a few kind of you know worst offender areas that can be relatively easily captured. And I think that there's a lot that could be done with you know reducing emissions, but coal is really nasty when you when you burn it to produce electricity. There's a lot of true effluents that are released. When you burn oil, I mean, you're primarily releasing CO2, which is mm. not a pollutant. It's actually the stuff of life. And I know it's controversial and so forth. And I'm not anti-renewables. The house I'm sitting in right now is powered by solar power. I love it. Yeah. But I also try to be realistic. And I think the planet and our policymakers need to be realistic. That it's, it's an intermittent source, whether it's solar or wind. And a lot of the key inputs actually are controlled by China. 
And do we really want, after what we've witnessed here with Europe and Russia, do we really want to make our energy future and really the, the essence of our economy reliant upon China? I, I don't think we do. And yeah. we are we've been so blessed. I mean, this is one of the most, I wrote a piece on this here a few weeks ago, talking about you know this gift we've gotten from the shale producers. And yet we don't seem to appreciate it. In fact, we, instead of thanking them, we've demonized them, which is exactly what Putin wants us to do. You know, he calls the shale people pedophiles, or at least he's used the Russian media to call them pedophiles. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because it's made us energy, effectively energy independent. Yeah. We, this is an amazing stat. If you don't know it, Andrew, in America, over the last 15 years, we've created the equivalent of two Saudi Arabias, basically 10 million barrels a day of additional production pretty close on oil and with NGLs, natural gas liquids, and then natural gas itself. So one basically being oil, the other one being natural gas. It's an amazing situation. We, they were building all these LNG facilities on the Gulf Coast to import natural gas. And now we're exporting and we're gonna export even more. It's an mm. amazing gift yeah. to the American public. And what do we do? You know, we basically treat them like criminals. Yeah. Okay, that helps. That helps on that front. My last question related to the different things that you've said is you snuck in there, David, emerging market debt, which made me think, oh, wait a minute, what, what, what are you talking about? Tell us about why you think there could be an opportunity in emerging market debt. Well, for one thing, you've had a reversal of behavior. And by that, I mean that what we're increasingly seeing is Western governments running with emerging market, what used to be emerging market fiscal and monetary policies. Mm. And in the developed world, you know, the so-called rich world, we've been increasingly using what used to be considered a banana republic type of economic policies. I mean, MMT, modern monetary theory, being a classic case. So, for example, in a lot of these, you know, countries like Indonesia, where they've got real interest rates and debt levels. To, I mean, the U.S. is one of the highest debt level countries out there now. I mean, Japan is the worst offender, of course, but at least they do own it internally. And Japan also has a massive predator position, whereas the U.S. has a massive debtor position. So this whole idea that U.S. debt is risk-free, I think the world is starting to wake up to the fact that particularly long-term treasuries are riskier than a lot of people believe. And I think there's going to be a, a considerable rotation, let's get back to one of the things you said early on, you know, the rotations of these different cycles into emerging market debt out of U.S. Treasury debt. So it's – And just know, that's, so, that's, Go ahead. Just to reinforce that, so what you're saying is fiscal and monetary policies of emerging markets, turns out they're now more responsible than what we're seeing in the U.S. and other developed markets. I think of Thailand, you know, I mean, we went through this in 1997 and it really scarred people. And I would say that one of the other things that was interesting about Thailand is they passed a, a law many years ago, a long time ago, about that debt to GDP couldn't be more than I believe it was 40%. That's it. That's the limit. You can't go over that. Well, I think what you're hitting on is very important. You have those kinds of near-death experiences, and it you know scares the bejesus out of you, and you behave differently. You put in those kinds of laws. Yeah. And in America, we just think we can spend without any consequences. And that's that's the other point about the emerging markets that's fascinating is that basically the emerging markets didn't have the luxury to pump out a tremendous amount of cash. Take example during COVID time, take example of Thailand where definitely, you know, there, things were shut down and people were in a desperate situation, but the government never printed money to hand it out to 
to the local population, not because they didn't want to. I mean, politicians love giving out money, but the first thing is they have the limit of the debt to GDP, number one. But the second thing is that they have the market discipline of a floating exchange rate. And if they started to produce a lot of debt, what would have happened to the Thai bot relative to other currencies? It would have been collapsing. And they knew that. And so they were constrained by market forces, which is this old concept. David, you may remember it when we were young, called capitalism and free markets. <laughs> yes. And boy, are, here we are, are in Asia, free markets are working species. well. No, you're right. In fact, to that point, this is uh, the main perpetrator of my book, frankly, is the Fed. Yeah. I mean, that's really who I blame for so much. They're not, I mean, Congress gets a lot of the blame too, but the Fed, I think, has the starring role. And Jeff Gunlock from Double Line, who is the new king of bonds, he's replaced Bill Gross, who retired, has said, let's just get rid of the Fed and let the two-year Treasury note set monetary policy. And I think it's actually a brilliant idea. I mean, the Fed is a very expensive institution to run. Their forecasting record has been horrific. I mean, they only get right about one third of the time, the, you know, the, the Fed funds rate, which they sat. I mean, that's <laughs> pretty pathetic right there. I mean, go back and look at what they were saying in early 2022, what the Fed funds rate was going to be the end of 2020. They weren't even in, remotely in the ballpark. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very flawed institution and it has been a great enabler and inflator of these bubbles. So it's uh, that. But that's the point is that the West and also beyond the the economic uh, policies. Also, how about the rule of law, where the rule of law is increasingly at risk in the West and where it's become extremely arbitrary. And I think that's really making it difficult for businesses to have confidence. And, you know, will this be, you know, if we make an investment today, how, what will our government policy be in five years? Yeah. I just got an email right before we started recording that apparently the state of Washington is considering or King County tripling property taxes, which are already really high. Yeah. Tripling. And I said, is this fake news? Apparently it's not fake news. It's just <laughs> and there's never enough revenue. Look at look at look at this one fact here, Andrew, from the MMT. This tells you what happened when the Fed government federal government went nuts on MMT. In two, fiscal year 2022, we had all-time high record revenues of four trillion dollars. Right. And yet the federal deficit was, no, I'm sorry, that was fiscal 2021, sorry. Fiscal mm. 2021 was $4 trillion of revenue, and again, all-time high, but the deficit was $2.8 which was, you know, just an astronomical deficit. I mean, you're talking close to 10% of GDP. Just yeah. insane. I mean, it, it does, it's, it's the idea that they can solve their problems with more revenue has been repeatedly refuted. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that you... The institutions that made America great, I would argue the first one is education at the, the basic level where young people weren't necessarily taught rote memorization, whereas in the East, it was all based on that and still is in many cases, whereas you had some more individualized thinking going on from a young age. And the second thing is the, the academic infrastructure at the highest level for PhDs, which I would argue has been destroyed. I mean, if, if anybody has confidence in the independence of academics in their writing, they may have missed the last two years of almost prostitution of the intellect because of the COVID madness. And whether that was in the medical space, whether that was in the medical academic space, 
whether it's in just pure academia, but you know, people flocked from all over the world to get a PhD in a US institution. And I believe in the last couple of years that they've destroyed that. At the at the lowest level of education, it's over. It's it's just over. For the average person, it's almost impossible for them to get a good education at the lowest level. Of course, private education and all that, but that doesn't that doesn't help the general population. And then the third thing, of course, is the rule of law. And I think that's been really, really pushed to the limit. And I think the fourth thing coming and the post I put on my LinkedIn a while ago, how long before the First Amendment is modified? And I believe that now you have people that see personal affronts and all kinds of different opinions more important than the value of free speech. And these items, I would argue, all coming together is just a destruction of what made America, the core of America's greatness. There's many other things that made it great, but if those core things are destroyed, then there is no beacon, you know, of freedom in the world. So that's my little rant, David. That's a good rant. It's, and it all ties together. And it's, uh, it's this ignorance that you're talking about or, and prostitutes, I think you said prostitutization of the academia at, at the PhD level, even. And, you know, where you have to say things which are politically correct, even if they're irrational and policies are pursued, even if they're harmful. And even if the evidence increasingly indicates that you shouldn't be doing it. And frankly, that's what I worry about with the great green energy transition. There's kind of this denial of physics. I mean, these, these, these things just can't happen. You talk to anybody that, that says there's not enough copper in the world. There's not enough lithium. It's just it isn't going to work. And you can't build new transmission line. But it's just like full speed ahead. Doesn't matter. This is we believe this. This is what has to happen. We're going to do it. And yeah, I think you'd say that a lot about the way COVID was handled, where there was yeah. a lot of ignorance of some kind of critical facts. But anyway, don't want to go too far down yeah. there. We should talk about mistakes. My goodness, I, what an don't introduction! Talk about mistakes. What an introduction. I mean, there's so many things for, for the listeners out there. I'll have all that in the show notes. So if you're interested, I think the mention about uranium was an interesting one about scarcity, about hard assets. Also the talk about the energy companies is one of the plays. And then emerging market debt, I found fascinating. And all of that and much more you'll find in David's book as well as in his writing. So just pop to the show notes and click on the links and learn more. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, you know, there's I've got more than one, but I'm going to start with the one that's really the attention grabber. because. Um, you know, there's there's errors in our business. There's errors of omission and errors of commission. And I think we always think the errors of commission are worse than this, but this one was omission. And you remember the old TV show, Do You Want to Be a Millionaire? Yeah. <laughs> well, in my case, it should have been, Do You Want to Be a Billionaire? And I guess my answer was no, because I I don't think you'll ever have a guess on it. You've had one or ever will have one who made as big a financial mistake as I did. So we got to go back to, it was November of 1994. So you'd only been in Thailand, what, a couple of years at that point? Yeah. I remember vividly getting a call from a guy that was, we were both at Smith Barney at the time. We were both portfolio managers at Smith Barney. And we, at that point, we were investing side by side in virtually everything. And we were leaving on a, it was right before Thanksgiving, 1994. We were leaving on a family ski trip to Mount Bachelor. And he goes, Dave, Dave, you really got to hear this guy before you make time because he's this company he's starting I'm going to put $50,000, which 
we were pretty young back then. That was a lot of money back in those days and something that was a startup. And he was a smart guy. I said, Gary, really, what, what did they do? And he told me what they did. And I said, I just don't get the competitive mode. I mean, here's the kicker, giving it away. Can't anybody sell books on the internet? Who so can here sell books on the internet? Golden chance to invest in Amazon. What's even more embarrassing is Jeff Bezos at the time when he was holding these little get-togethers literally in a garage of a rental house of two blocks from where I was living. And I could have easily, if I, I really didn't know until the very last minute, and I kind of forgot about it. And so I really, I didn't, if I heard him, I probably would have gone into it, but I didn't. And then six months later, my buddy calls me and he goes, Dave, hey, do you remember that internet company that I was telling you about that, you know, you know selling books? And, and I said, yeah, the one that I thought Barnes and Nobles could put out of business. And he goes, yeah, well, guess what? They're getting ready to go public. And that was like, I mean, companies just didn't do that back then. I mean, this is when Netscape went public and kind of the whole internet mania really took off. But the fact that Amazon was able to go public real, you know, in a fairly quick time frame, I think it was really 96 before they went public. I think he gave me that call, Kleiner Perkins had invested in it. Anyway, he, at one point, he owned 75 basis points of Amazon. And he made a lot of money, though. He sold it many, many years ago before the first, you know, when that bubble to 1.0 burst, he sold before that happened, but he never got back in. But still, when I look back, I would have I probably would have put in half. I could have owned half a percent or three, 37 basis points of Amazon, which would make me a multi-billionaire. But I said, can't anybody sell books on the Internet? So that one, if you ever have a guest that missed by that much, tell me about it, because I think my record's going to stand for a long time. That does stand. That was May 15th, 1997, that Amazon went public at $18 per share. So not only did you have a chance at the beginning, but you had another second chance and probably a third chance along the way with your friend talking to your friend. But yes, it's so it's so challenging when you see startups and those types of things also to, to make the bet. So what lessons did you learn from that particular one? Invest in every startup that anybody shows you. Well, not, but yeah, that's that's the thing about it. People will come to you with these ideas, and, and I'm always reluctant to say, don't put any money. Just say, put money that you can afford to live in. It really is a great sounding idea to put some in. Again, if I heard the pitch, I probably would have done it. But, you know, that's that was a personal loss. The, the one that I, the mistake that hangs over me much more for my clients was, we kind of touched on this earlier, I believe, when the S&P broke out in 2013. I mean, the S&P basically went nowhere from 2000 to 2013, 13 years. And it had that major breakout along with Microsoft. Microsoft was tracking just the same way. And I missed it. I didn't say, you know, this is a time that we need to be at least, you know, equally weighted equities at our targets in our portfolios. We were underweight on valuation concerns. We'd done fabulously coming out of the financial crisis. We bought into that. Mm. We made a ton of money. And I was kind of in protect mode because I thought, you know, this this is the Fed, it was QE1, QE2, QE3. It was like, this is this is fake prosperity. You know, this just this won't last. How can they continue to prop up these financial markets like this? But that the reason I'm harping on that is because that's one of the most important things I can tell your listeners is the importance of range expansions. Now, that's a term that Paul Tudor Jones created, but I stumbled on it. I called it you know, multi-year breakouts and breakdowns. And my magic rule was three years. And, you know, I've, I've actually kind of proven that with a lot of other instances prior to 2013. So I knew it worked. And you mm -hmm. can see that like the financial stocks in 07, when they were breaking down and breaking multi-year support. So it goes both ways. When there is a, a long-term trading ban and that range is violated either up or down, 
that trend is going to continue in almost all cases. We kind of know that intuitively, but most people don't invest that way. Yeah. And I ignore so many times a big mistake and one I you know, still feel bad about to this day. But then God got even with me because uh, in 2019, I was short Tesla and Tesla broke out of a multi-year trading range. And guess what? I didn't cover. I, I kind of covered and you know, went, mm. I was in and out a little bit, but I got caught short during that huge run up that happened after, uh, you know, we put out that famous tweet about being acquired at 420 secured financing, which turned out to be complete, you know, misinformation. Anyway, I could have bought a fleet of Teslas for how much money I lost being short Tesla. So I'm just telling you, I've proven it with in so many ways that when you see, and it's like the bigger and longer the trading range, the more important the message of the breakout or breakdown is. Mm. So it's, yeah, those are my those are my big whiffs, and they're they're pretty serious. I'm reminded of episode 59 of the podcast. Right now, we're at about 670. This was back in 2019. It was Danielle DiMartino Booth. Who, good friend. Yeah, who the title of hers was "Don't Fight Liquidity, Flow with It." And sometimes, I think one of the lessons that I take away is that. Sometimes we get caught in a paradigm that we have an opinion or a view, and let's just say it, it's even worse when it's working, that we get wedded to it. And then something shifts and we can't see the shift. And so I think one of the big lessons from what you've just said is, you know, how do you keep an open and agile mind? It's very difficult, particularly when your idea is working. But I think one of the lessons that I would take away is that we always in the investment space have to keep an open and agile mind. And I use some of my style is quantitative based. And one of the things that I love about it is that it forces me to own some things I do not want to own. Mm -hmm. And that is fascinating because it prevents me from being too wedded to a position. And it's been a number of times that I've been kind of pushed into some things using a very systematic quantitative framework that I've developed over a decade. But it's pushed me into some things that I didn't feel necessarily comfortable in, but I felt like it's worth testing this out. And one of the recent ones is, uh, you know, overweight, or let's say a higher position on the equity side in Europe. And that's been a little bit scary for me, given all the risks that I see there. Is there anything you would add to, to my takeaway there about that, how to stay agile? Well, I think you're exactly right. And I do see that happen with people that I respect, admire, and where they just kind of get locked into a certain mindset. And so you have to constantly challenge yourself. So one way I do that is I read a lot of people who I don't really agree with. Or I just kind of read, stay with them for years when they go through cycles that I disagree. Sometimes I agree, sometimes I disagree. David Rosenberg's an example, brilliant guy. And there's sometimes I've been absolutely in line with him. Other times, you know, like David, what are you thinking? But I continue to read him. For one thing, he's got fabulous charts. You know, Danielle is somebody that I read all the time, and we weren't exactly in sync. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I think I was much more concerned about MMT and inflation. But you know, really, so I try to listen to brilliant people, especially brilliant people that disagree with me. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly challenge. And that's, you know, we talked about GovCal and I know, you know, Louis Gov and mm. brilliant. Guy. And, and the one thing that's really cool about GovCal is they don't have a house view. They have this internal debate and they'll debate with their clients too. So they're constantly challenging their theses. And I think that's a great way to 
to maintain that open mind that you're alluding to. But I do find, you know, that because technical analysis, I think, can get overdone where people look for every squiggle. I'm not looking for squiggles. I'm looking for major trend changes. And when you see something that, you know, like what happened to the S&P in 2013 or Microsoft in 2013, where it just range traded all that time and their earnings kept growing and the PE went from 120 down to 10 and it was just a cash machine and it broke, breaks out to the upside. I mean, those things are just gifts. Yeah. But so often, you know, people, so many people have been burned holding Microsoft all that time. They didn't believe the breakout. Mm. Believe breakouts. I mean, that's one of my, especially really long breakouts. And I think Japan's in the process of doing that right now, by the way. Yeah. That's yep. another one that I've been kind of pushed into with my model. So Japan and, and Europe. So for those listeners out there, you can listen to Louis Vincent Gav's conversation on episode 653. The one last thing I just wanted to say is that for every company that goes to become a billion dollar, trillion dollar company, the good news is that to give some comfort, 99.9999999999% of people missed it also. So if there's any comfort, you're not alone. All right. What is a- Thank re- you, Andrew. I appreciate that. Throw yes. me a bone there. You're with- My you're family's with- going to put it on my tombstone. He yes. missed Amazon. You're with the rest of us. All right. What's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Well, obviously, uh, you know, our free newsletter, Making Hay Monday. So go to Substack and get that if you don't see it in your show notes. That's the easiest way to do it. For our book, if you want a copy of Bubble 3.0, a hard copy, please email us through Substack. We'll send you a free copy. Although with your listenership, we may get overwhelmed. It may it cost me even more money. That's, that's also great advice I can give your people. Don't write a book. It costs a lot of money to write a book, and I've done it twice now. Yeah, I, there are there's so much information out there now. It's um, it's hard, kind of hard to identify who would mm. be the number one go to. But yep. I mean, if you're looking for an individual, I have a lot of respect for Jesse Felder, who writes the Felder Report. That's very reasonably priced, so that would be one that I would recommend. Uh, but you know, again, our stuff because a lot of times we run GolfCal. So in, in GolfCal, if you try to subscribe to it on your own. It's extremely pricey. It's really institutional research. So that's kind of one thing that I think I offer to our readers is being able to distill some of this. Because I I spent a lot of money of our firm's money, my money, getting research from people like Daniel DiMartino Booth. So those are some great ones. In fact, today, right now, as we speak, which is April 19th that we're recording this, Jesse Felder's episode 674 just came out. Don't rationalize a lousy trade. So some great company that you're in here. Now, my next question to you, and it's my last question, is what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I guess uh, I want to go max bullish at some point over the next 12 months. I've had in my personal account, as we've already talked about, I've had a lot of short positions on for most of the last 15 years. And there have been times where it's been just great. There's been times it's been terrible. But overall, it's been very good to me, believe it or not, despite the Tesla fiasco. Mm. But I really would like to remove my shorts and go max long coming up here at some point in the next year. And one of the reasons that actually I was listening to a podcast that we got did with uh, one of your theme competitors, and it was just the other day, and he made the point that you know, all this money that's fleeing the banking system and going into money market funds, at some point, there is going to be a migration of that money into risk assets. Now, I think it's going to be at lower prices, and in some cases, much lower prices. In other words, I think this bear market has not fully played out. I know Jesse Elder agrees with that totally. 
But I, I think, you know, what I don't want to do is miss the big turn when it comes. Mm. And I think a lot of people are jumping the gun on that, frankly, right now. So I hope that's an adequate answer. Yep. And just to make a correction, I don't have any competitors because there is no one competing to be the worst podcast hosts and listeners. There you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, David, I wanna thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Thoughts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just don't do what I did. Learn from my mistakes. Always so much cheaper to learn from other people's mistakes than your own. Great words. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. I know it's a bold mission. Most people laugh when they hear it, but you won't be laughing when I hit 1 million. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.